that next week we're starting a four-week series on marriage, and it's called Best Advice Ever. So if you uh, are interested in that topic, uh, we're going to be hitting on that issue for the next four weeks. Anybody here think that they could use some help on marriage, some insight, some advice, some good biblical (laughs) suggestions about marriage? I could, yeah. All right, so that's, I just wanted to get those things out. Thank you. Okay, let's, let's just bow our heads here and let's say a word of prayer. Our Lord, you are so good. I, I mean, you know, we can't believe that we're, this is our last week here. We want to pray for the people, of, uh, uh, the people who work here at the Old National Event Center. Lord, we want to thank you for them. We want to thank you for their uh, support and for how they have made this possible for us and their cooperation with us. Lord, we pray for your blessings upon them individually, and we pray for your blessings on them collectively as well. Lord, we pray today that as we consider what you would say to us through the Scriptures, that you would speak deeply to us, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Lord, that we would walk out of here today changed, because of what you have said to us today. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. It's fitting that on our last Sunday here, we're wrapping up a series that we've been in called What Makes a Powerful Church. And throughout the series, we've been challenging you to drop the individualistic uh, me mindset with which most people approach church today. and To drop that and to become part of the collective we here at City Church. Okay? That's been the overarching focus of the series. But in addition to that, we've been breaking down our vision statement. And we've look, been looking at some of the key ideas in our uh, vision statement through the lens of the prophet Isaiah. What I'd like to do is just one more time. I'd like for us to just repeat our vision statement uh, together. Okay? Repeat our vision statement together. And we're going to put it up here on the screen so that you can see it. And we'll say it together uh, collectively. The vision of City Church is to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond through a movement of people who are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This week I'm going to talk about something that is implied in that statement, and that is social justice. It's there in our vision statement. Um, When we say that we want to bring social renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond, that starts with social justice. And I think some of you will be very surprised by how much God cares about social justice issues. If you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to Isaiah chapter 58. If you have an electronic version of the Bible, just find Isaiah chapter 58. We've talked so far in this series about the importance of the gospel to our vision statement. We've talked about a love, uh, the importance of having a love for the city of Evansville. We've talked about the importance of building relationships, of community. You weren't saved to be independent, to be alone. You were saved to be part of a community. Last week, we talked about the importance of a sense of mission. This week, we're going to listen as God speaks to us about social, vision, uh, social justice. And let's start reading uh, Isaiah chapter 58. Let's start reading at verse 1. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. 
as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Now, I just want to stop here for a second. We'll keep reading. Just let me say something uh, parenthetically here. I want to make sure that you don't let what God is saying here blow past you. God is speaking, of course, to the nation of Israel through his prophet Isaiah. Verse 1 says that they're in rebellion. But did you notice that in verses 2 and following, this passage describes arguably what most of us would think of as very dedicated religious people. Look at it. It says day after day, they seek God out. They are eager. The word eager, it's used a couple of times in these verses. It actually means passionate. They, 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 they are passionate to know God's ways. In other words, the scripture. They study the Bible. They sit under teaching of the Bible so they can learn it. They want God to come near. They fast. They humble themselves. These people, they, like, they, they sound like the kind of people any pastor today would love to have in his church. Like you could build a church on these kinds of people. So in what possible sense could they be in such rebellion? Let's pick it up with the last line of verse 3. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please, and you exploit all of your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked, to clothe him, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. Let's stop there. I don't know about you, but I find all of that terribly startling. And after reading that, here's a point that I think that we ought to remember on the verge of moving into our new building downtown. And I'll say it this way. Social justice is very near to the heart of God. Social justice is very near to the heart of God. Here's another way to say it. If you think that you're close to God, but you don't have a deep concern for social justice, you are farther away than you think. If you think you're close to God, 
don't have deep concern for social justice, you are farther away than you think. No matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how right your doctrine is, no matter how much of the Bible you know, no matter how much you pray, you see that. Like in this passage, right? It's like he's saying, he's saying, look, all of that other stuff you do, all of the fasting, all of the Bible study, all of the prayer, all of the devotional times you do, if that's not creating in you a concern for social justice, you might as well stop all of that stuff. It's a waste of your time. And here's another place, uh, Isaiah 1. I want you to hear what God says about this in Isaiah 1. He says, the multitude of your sacrifices, that was the form of one of the forms of Israel's worship then. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Then he says, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Are you seeing it? Do you understand that a deep concern for social justice is a heart of biblical faith? Some of you here may have rejected the Bible and you're like, oh, I, you know, I, don't, I don't believe the Bible. Some of you may accept it, have accepted the Bible and you say, I do believe the Bible. But do you realize that this is at the heart of biblical truth? Do you know what you've rejected? Do you know what you've accepted on the other hand? Do you see the importance of social justice to God? He's saying, if you don't have a deep concern for social justice, you really don't have me. You don't have my heart. You're not getting it if you don't have a deep concern for social justice. Now, here's the thing. When we talk about social justice, I think it's important to clarify a couple of things. First, I think it's important to say that the issues surrounding social justice in our own culture today, here in America, are deeply rooted and they are very complex issues. Like, what, what should we do with the poor in our country? Uh, what, what about Syrian refugees? What about illegal immigrants in America? What about the tensions that exist between police departments and the uh, African-American community that has literally spilled over into our streets over the last couple of years? What do we do about those things? To be honest, I don't have the answers to those things. And I suspect neither do you. But here's the question. Do you care? Let me just let that settle in for a moment. Do you, as a white, predominantly white, middle-class, evangelical church, do you care about those things? Do you view these things through the lens of God's heart for social justice? Is it something that even crosses your mind? Um, can I be completely candid with you about something? In 30 years of being a follower of Christ and sitting in white, evangelical, middle, and upper-class churches and attending seminary for six years of that period of time, I have never once heard a sermon on social justice. And I'm even more embarrassed to tell you that I've never preached a sermon on social justice before. And you, you have no idea how embarrassing that is to me to tell you that this morning. Where, where, where have I been? 
How have I missed how important this is to the heart of God? In the churches that I've attended or pastored, yes, we were concerned about the issue of abortion, and that is a social justice issue, absolutely. But can I tell you something? Never once did racism come up. The plight of our African-American brothers and sisters in Christ never once came up. You guys know I lived in the South for a long time, and Never once did I hear a question, the question asked in a church service. Are you exploiting your Hispanic maid or the Hispanic men who take care of your yard with the wages that you pay them? Like, I never heard it asked. How much money should a Christian pay people who do that kind of work? Never heard that question asked. Not, not what are others paying them, but how much should a Christian pay them? We, I, never heard or discussed those issues. We talked a lot about Bible study and devotional times and prayer. And I would go so far as to say that we measured the quality of our relationship with God on the basis of the quantity and the quality of our quiet times, our devotional times, our prayer times. But we never measured it on our concern for social justice. And here God is saying, you want to measure the quality of your spiritual life? Look at your concern for social justice. And then here's the other thing that I want to say about social justice and these very complex social justice issues. I want to ask you this question. What influences your attitude on these issues more? Your political party and favorite political commentators or your faith in Christ? which influences your opinion on these matters more. This is a presidential season. Is that news to any of you? Um, There's all kinds of rhetoric about how to solve social justice issues. But what always concerns me is that as Christ followers, that our party affiliation or our favorite political commentator will influence our views on these issues more than our faith in Christ. Politicians and pundits on the right say, well, poor and homeless people are there because government welfare programs make them dependent and discourage them from working. Liberals, on the other hand, say, well, they're poor and they're homeless because of inequities in the economic system. Look, I'll be honest with you. I don't know which is true. Maybe maybe they're both true. Maybe neither are true. I, I don't know. If you're a conservative, does that conservative view that poor and homeless people Uh, are there because government welfare programs make them dependent and discourage them from working? Does that view make you loving toward them? Or does it make you hateful and resentful toward them? If you're a liberal, does your view that there are inequities in the economic system and we need the government to step in and help, does that cause you to serve these people Or do you just say, well, let's leave it to government to care for them? Listen, I'm not, as I said, I'm not smart enough to know whether the Democrats or the Republicans have a better solution to poverty and all of these other social issues. All I know is that the poor in our society should be of concern to me. All I know is that the exploited in our culture should be of concern to me. Why? Because they're a concern to God. 
And if I am genuinely growing closer to him, my concern for these people and these issues should be increasing as time goes by. Let your faith in Christ affect your view on social justice issues more than your political party affiliation. That's all I'm saying there. Okay? See it through the lens of God's heart for the poor, the oppressed, those who suffer injustice. See it through that lens more than you see it through your political party affiliation because, listen to me, if you're a follower of Christ, you are first a citizen of heaven and second a Republican or a Democrat or whatever other party that you choose to belong to. Okay. Social justice is near to the heart of God. That's what we have been talking about so far. But here is an important question that I think naturally comes out of that. And maybe even you have been asking yourself as I've been talking about it, well, why? Why does God care so much about that? Why would God say the deep concern for social justice goes together with a love relationship with him? Well, that, that leads to my second point, And here it is. It's because the reason he cares so much about this is because social justice facilitates Shalom. Social justice facilitates shalom. And let me explain what I mean. Um, The background of the foundation of all Hebrew scripture, of all of the Old Testament, is this uh, concept of shalom. Now, uh, most people think that shalom means peace, and it does mean peace, but it's a kind of peace that exists because everything in the world is working harmoniously and interdependently and cooperatively. So let me, here's an easy way to remember what shalom means. It means life the way it was intended to be. That's shalom. It's a peace that comes because life is operating the way it was intended to be. You see, God created everything in the world to be in this beautiful, harmonious, interdependent, knitted, webbed relationship to each other. Shalom exists... When all of that in the world is happening. So let me give you three quick examples of this. When your body is working the way it is supposed to, and every part of the body is working harmoniously with the others, you experience physical shalom. But if you have cancer, it means part of your body is not working with the other parts of your body. And so you experience the unraveling of physical shalom. Psychologically, Here's the second one, psychologically. Your inner psyche, it has different parts to it. You know, your conscience, your feelings, your reason. If they're all working together, you have inner shalom, peace. But what if your feelings really want something that your conscience says is wrong? Will you experience guilt? And that's an unraveling of psychological shalom. And then third, social So when people have money and resources and advantages and they plunge them into the community so that the parks are great and the schools are great and the houses are great and you have this strong social fabric, you experience social shalom. But when those who have money and advantages ignore and just hold on to everything, then social shalom unravels. So you see, social justice facilitates shalom in the world. Look back up at verse 6. 
God says, is, this, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Do you see what's happening here? The people of God are to put back together, as best we can, in a fallen world, the way things were intended to be. Shalom. We should be seeking shalom for the people of this world, for the people of this city. Now, what does it look like for us to do social justice so that people experience shalom? Well, to do justice means that you go to the places where the shalom of society is unraveling, where it's breaking down, where the weaker members of society are falling through the cracks. And you take your emotions and you take your time and you take your body and you take your physical presence, you take your stuff, you take your money, and you plunge all of that into the lives of other people. Through the many Different organizations there are here in the city of Evansville that are ministering, that are caring for these people. You put all of that into your community. Now look, right? no one person can do everything. That's not possible. But is there somewhere that you are working for the shalom of Evansville? And I think, just to be honest, I think we as a church have to ask that question too. Are there places that we as a church are working for the shalom of the city of Evansville? And how can we do this in ever-increasing ways in the future? We need to consider that as a church. Now, I think when you hear God, uh, what God has to say in this passage about social justice, I think it would be very easy For you to make a big mistake about the main point of what God is saying and about where he's taking us in this. Here God is saying, you know, he's saying, look, you're doing fine with your worship. You're doing fine with your personal morality. You're doing fine with your prayer. But social justice, you're not doing fine there. And then I think some of you would think to yourself, oh, okay, well, my list of things that I have to do as a Christian wasn't long enough. I just need now to add something to my list. I need to go do charity for the poor or something. And then, and then if I do that, then God will hear my prayers. Then he will hear me. Then he will bless me. Then he will take me to heaven, what, whatever. The problem is, if that's the way you think, you will have missed the point. In fact, what we're saying today is a critique of that very kind of religion. Do you know what is wrong with the people in verses 2 to 3? You know what's wrong with their perspective? They're trying to leverage God. They're saying, they're saying, look, look at all the things that we do. We've lived a very good life and we worship well and we pray well and we fast and we humble ourselves. We're doing all that stuff. We're checking stuff off the list. And now you owe us. You ought to answer our prayers now. You ought to bless us now. You ought to, you know, whatever. But if you approach social justice in that way, I want to tell you something. You have only strengthened the selfishness of your heart. Because then you see, you're only caring for others to help yourself. You would, you, you, you know, if you're doing it, you wouldn't be doing good for God's sake or for other people's sake or for goodness sake. You're doing it out of absolute self-centeredness and self-absorption. And look, here's the thing. I know that's how 
you know, in our, I know that's how, that's how we normally motivate people to do good. I mean, like, when I say we, I mean all of us. How we normally motivate, how businesses, how companies, how, you know, um, liberal religious groups. That's how we normally motivate people to do good. We appeal to their self-centeredness. We, uh, we guilt them. We shame them. Or maybe we appeal to their pride and we say, well, you wouldn't want to be like those other people who ignore these kinds of people, would you? No, see, we appeal to their pride. And then in the Christian community, we often do the same thing. We tell people, you know, like, if you don't do this, if you don't, if you don't do this stuff, God won't bless you. He'll punish you. On the other hand, we tell people, you know, do this so that you aren't like the sinners, which that only creates pride. But here's the problem. That will never, ever produce people who do social justice in the manner that this passage is calling us to. It will never produce people who plunge their life and their money and their emotions into reweaving the fabric of society. So what will? If guilt and fear, and shame, and pride, if that won't motivate you to do it in a self-centered way, what will? What can motivate you? Write this down. Only the beauty of the life and the death of Jesus Christ can motivate you to selfless concern for social justice. I know that's long. I couldn't find a way to make it shorter. (laughs) Let me say it again. Only the beauty of the life and the death of Jesus Christ can motivate you to selfless concern. That's what we're being called to here. Selfless concern for social justice. When you think of Jesus, who's so identified with the poor, and he said, look, if you love the poor, you love me. If you trample on the poor, you trample on me. Uh, You're reminded of the extent that Jesus went to to identify with with the poor. He was born in a feed trough. When his parents took him to circumcision, their offering was just two pigeons, which was the kind of offering that only people on the lowest rung of the socioeconomic ladder would bring. Throughout his life, Jesus was essentially homeless. He rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey instead of a limousine. He was convicted of a crime that he never committed by a travesty of justice. He died and was buried in a borrowed tomb. He ate his last meal in a borrowed room. Jesus was poor. Jesus was oppressed. In a world that is so full of injustice, it would frankly be hard to believe in God if he was somehow immune to all of this pain and suffering and oppression and poverty and injustice in the world. It would be hard to believe in him. But only Christianity, of all of the religions in the world, says God wasn't immune from it. That in Jesus, he became one of the poor, the oppressed, the victim of injustice. Why? Why did he do that? He did it for you and he did it for me. We who have caused all of the problems of the world we live in, we get mercy and pardon. Jesus, who caused none of it and deserves none of the punishment, allows himself to be punished on the cross in our place so that we won't have to be. That's the beauty. That's the beauty that will get you out of yourself. That does away with fear. 
That does away with pride. That does away with guilt. And it leaves only love. So that you can love for God's sake. You can love God for God's sake and you can love the poor for God's sake. I'm not serving and so I'm not, I'm not caring about and doing things about social justice because I feel guilty that I haven't been. I'm not doing it because I feel ashamed that I haven't been. I'm not doing it so that I'm not like the other people who don't do anything. I'm doing it because if, look at all that Christ did. The, the one that I follow. Look at all that he did. Look at the life that he lived. Look at, look at what he did for me. Oh my goodness. If he did that, I want to do that because I love him. And so my heart beats for the same things that his heart beats for. That's what will motivate you to get out of yourself. Only that. Seems fitting to me. You know, I think, I think to, get, to understand that, you have to, you have to Take the beauty of that in. You've got to meditate on that. You've got to think about that. You've got to let that permeate yourself. And one of the ways that we do that is by taking communion. And it seems fitting today. On our last Sunday uh, in this place, and on a Sunday that we're talking about social injustice, to celebrate together the world's greatest act of injustice, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And what his death earned for you and for me. The ushers are going to come up. They're going to pass the elements around. Hold them. Hold them in your hands. Hold the cup. Hold the, hold the bread in your hands. And we're going to take them together in just a few minutes. Jake and the band are going to come up. They're going to play. I'd like for you to just take this. Okay, we're, so we're going, to have, we're going to have them go to the tables then, I guess, for the elements. Okay, so I, I said it wrong. The ushers aren't going to come up. We're going to send you guys. There's tables all around the room where there are cups and there, there's bread uh, around the room. And so in just a moment... When you feel led to, I'd like for you to get up, go to one of the tables, grab a piece of the bread, grab a cup, and take it back to your seat. I'd like for you to keep this in mind as you do. What an incredible irony that God's heart for justice is so significant, and yet his son died of an act of incredible, tra- tragic injustice for you and for me. And I'd like for you to keep something else in mind. For the early Christians, one of the problems that they faced in their culture was that people thought that if other people thought, the rest of the culture believed that it was ridiculous that these people, these Christians, would follow someone who was crucified on a cross. That was such an act of shame. That was so shameful that they thought they were crazy to follow this person, this one that they called the Savior of the world, their Messiah. And yet, early Christians uh, continued to celebrate and they even chose the symbol of the cross to be the thing that stood for what they believed. 
as you go and as you grab the elements this morning, would you remember that what we're celebrating today is foolishness to the rest of the world. But it is the wisdom of God for those who believe.